0: Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, learning from the leaders with me, Beth Crackles. In this episode, I'm chatting direct marketing with Catherine Holloway, who is Head of Individual Giving and Supporter Care at Friends of the Earth. We cover supporter journeys, the welcome journey in particular, internal comms that create a culture of fundraising and help to motivate staff. We talk about GDPR, because it turns out that Kat actually loves GDPR and the opportunities that that provides. And we talk about the various channels that Friends of the Earth is currently using to recruit supporters as well. It's always nice to have a chat with Catherine because she's a brilliant fundraiser and a brilliant person too. I hope that you enjoy listening. Hello Catherine. Hello Beth. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me in this amazing media room that you're allowed in today. I know. It's very cosy. We've got the romantic lights on as well. (laughs) Amazing. Special atmosphere in here. Yeah, as I was saying before we press record, it's been a strange day for recording in terms of lighting because um, at Social Investment Business, I got in the lift. And the girl said, oh, by the way, the lights are broken. And then we <laughs> went up in a dark lift. That was strange. It was that was a test. Yeah, yeah. Classic voluntary sector infrastructure. Yes. Negligence. Yeah, we can't, <laughs> can't afford to keep the lights on. Sorry. <laughs> it literally can't afford yeah. to keep the lights on. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about... I think this is a working title that I've put here, which is totally nailing direct marketing, but... um, No pressure or anything. Yeah, no pressure at all. Um, I think Catherine's Twitter profile, you say that you're like gin, pastry, Devon.
1: Yeah. But I
0: have you down as direct marketing... I should Go add it in there. Yeah. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Please do now, just yeah. for the podcast. <laughs> i like, why is she speaking to somebody that likes pastries? In death? <laughs> um, yeah, it's because Kat is really good at direct marketing. We worked together at Friends of the Earth, which was nice. And we've stayed in touch, I think, primarily because we love beige food. Yes, we like double carving on our social meetups, so... Yeah.
1: We've kept that going which is important. Yeah yeah Yeah, it's been good.
0: The best example being ordering four sides of mac and cheese because they didn't have it as a main. They didn't have it as a main so we made it work for us. (laughs) Yeah Yeah. so um, we can always fall back and talk about base food if we need to but I thought what we'd do first is talk about direct marketing. Do you want to start by giving us a bit of an overview of your background?
1: Yeah sure it's really annoying to have to say this because I'm one of those many people in the sector who fell into the sector. I didn't know that fundraising was a career you could have. My only experience of fundraising before my early 20s was shaking collection boxes and um, donating to the RNLI donation box outside the lifeboat station in Exmouth and the guide dog collection boxes outside supermarkets. And so it was only when I graduated from university um, I did a modern drama degree, but I didn't quite fancy trying to make a career out of postmodern performance art. And so I thought I would try and find a way to work for a theatre. So I started off by doing an internship in the development department at the Royal Court Theatre in Sloan Square in London. And that was my first experience of the fact that you could make fundraising a profession and you could do that as a career. On the and the fancy they, side of
0: town as well. Yeah,
1: it was a bit different to living in West Drayton, where I was above a lettings agent and opposite uh, a very fighty pub and with a very noisy pelican crossing outside. And then suddenly I'd get off the tube at the other end and be in Sloan Square with a lot of ladies who lunch. And yeah, um, it was a very different experience. Um, and they did mainly trust and foundation and major donor and corporate fundraising. They didn't do direct marketing, really. They obviously had the theatre ticket sales bit there. So that was my first experience of, of that sort of world. I then took a six-month contract working in um, a really small animal rights uh, NGO and five years later I was still at the BUAV and still fundraising. So I'd started off processing donations and answering calls from supporters and then I ended up doing more supporter care and then I started to do direct marketing and that also included doing database management high value fundraising, trust fundraising, everything on a shoestring because mm-hmm. we were a tiny organisation with about 12 people working there. Sometimes had more dogs in the office than than people, which was quite a nice balance a nice actually. Issue. Yeah, it was good. It was good. So that was me suddenly finding myself with a career in in a campaigning organisation and that was a whole new world to me as well. Mm-hmm. But it gave me that really good all-round experience of what it's like to work in a campaigning organisation. I got to go to party conferences and I I had a lot more direct contact with every aspect of the organisation because it was such a small place. Um, And that really developed a passion in me for campaigning organisations. And so when I left there, I was a direct marketing officer and then I joined Friends of the Earth. So that was nine years ago. And I joined as an individual giving officer And then I was fortunate enough to be able to progress um, through the IG team as and when my bosses left, basically. So thanks to my bosses, my previous bosses, for leaving at the time when I was able to apply and and get their their jobs. So it's been really fantastic to be able to develop my own career, and my own skills and expertise in an organisation that I feel really, really passionate about. Mm -hmm. Because often you have to jump around to different organisations to get that progression. So I feel that I'm in a really fortunate position. So now I head up the individual giving team and the supporter care teams. we brought those two teams together at Friends Mm -hmm. of the Earth. They've always been natural bedfellows, but I think strategically it makes a lot of sense to bring them really close together. And we've seen the benefit with each of those teams of of feeling like they've got a bit more of a kind of um, close working relationship in the day-to-day as well. So we did quite a, a restructure a couple of years ago and have refocused that team as more about supporter care and about that supporter experience and responding to all of those inquiries and move more of the kind of financy based bits of it into the finance team. So we're able to really focus the supporter care team um, on really providing a fantastic supporter experience
0: for everyone who gets in touch with us. Focusing on the supporter experience seems to be strategically what everybody is aiming to do, even where they can't necessarily demonstrate um the sort of financial return on that experience just yeah, yet it's yeah. what everybody feels and sort of knows in their gut is the right thing to do
1: yeah I think people are recognizing the value of engagement and good relationships mm-hmm. rather than just focusing on on short-term ROI I don't think that's completely I don't think we've completely turned the corner mm-hmm. um on that one as a sector but I know actually when I think back to when I started Uh, my career in the sector in 2005 there were a lot of the basics not being done right when it comes to supporter care so when I started on day one in that job there was a a stack load of thank you letters that had been printed out someone had done the mail merge for me which was great because it would have taken me a while to figure that out but there was a stack load of thank you letters that hadn't been sent out and yet they were about to send out the next appeal mailing to donors. Mm. And even as, you know, a 22-year-old who'd never worked in fundraising before, just the common sense of that, yeah. I was thinking, hang on, so we haven't said thank you for a donation that these supporters made, but yet we're going to send them a letter saying, can you make another donation? Mm-hmm. Something feels wrong about that. And so some of getting a lot of those basics right and really thinking about looking after supporters, I think, has, has, has vastly improved, but I think it's still something that's overlooked in places.
0: Yeah, and I think it's sometimes harder for larger organisations to do it. An example being that I responded to um, a DRTV advert for UNICEF back in March, mm-hmm. um, So, and it's middle of August now. I got a call last week saying, thanks, um, we're not going to ask you for money, but um, what you could do is give us some money... <laughs> Right. on a, via your mobile phone and the guy it was from the agency listen yeah and they were uh, he was actually brilliant so yeah. Yeah. well done listen yeah. it was a really good positive experience on mm-hmm. the phone call mm-hmm. um but there were some bits which i mean it took it took you like what four months or something yeah. To, yeah. to sort gone. of follow up with yeah. that and um, and i got a thank you letter which was which was very basic i don't know whether it was supposed to be more of a receipt but That's me analysing it as somebody who works in fundraising. If I was just a normal person, I'd be like, oh, well, thanks for sending me a letter, Mike, but um, you spelled my name wrong Mm -hmm. and you haven't mentioned Yemen in Mm -mm. any of this Mm -hmm. A4 page that you sent me and that's what I've given... Yeah. That's what... That's I know I haven't you. given towards that. I know right. I've given towards whatever you're doing in the organization. But that's yeah. what you've shown an interest in. Yeah. And just they haven't
1: they haven't once. they haven't continued that conversation properly. Yeah. And it, it is really a basic thing, isn't it? If we were to go out for carbs later on and you were to ask me about something and I just kind of sit there for about half an hour and then respond with something completely different. It wouldn't make any sense, It'd right? It would be really weird. It <laughs> be really weird. <laughs> and I think it may sound like a little bit of a weird example, but I think so much of this is just about basic communication yeah. and, and being more human and real with how we speak to people and respond to people and putting ourselves in the supporters' shoes when we're thinking about setting up a DRTV campaign, right, thinking about what is someone inspired by to respond to this ask right, what, is it, what are they going to expect back from us and how immediately are they going to expect to hear back from us? It, what are they going to feel if we wait four months before making a phone call? Mm-hmm. What, what are they going to feel when they read this letter off the back of what they've just responded to? So much of that is not hard to get right. And it's a mm-hmm. surprise that it's not, not better, to mm-hmm. be honest, because a large organisation, there are something, there are things that are struggles for different size organisations, but I don't think anyone's got the excuse of not getting a thank you letter, right? I think that's so simple to do.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about supporter journeys. Yes. People talk about, oh, well, you know, you need to plan your supporter journey, make sure it's a good one. And I think when you know so much about a topic, it mm-hmm. becomes really overwhelming, and you're like, oh, where do I even begin? Mm-hmm. How do we keep mm-hmm. this simple? And I, th- I think having worked for a few larger organizations, data gets involved and things get very complicated in terms of segmentation and targeting mm-hmm. and things like that. But taking it back, I saw a tweet from Matthew Sherrington, mm-hmm. who is brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, we Matthew. And it was something about sponsor engagement plans, and he said something along the lines of A basic supporter engagement plan should include something like four compelling appeals, a couple of inspiring newsletters, some decent email engagement reasonably often and thank yous for Mm -hmm. a starter. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah I think again it is about getting those fundamentals in there and making it make sense to the supporter. In the last few years we've had to realise that previously a lot of organisations were over-mailing their supporters or Mm over-contacting their supporters. And that has been driven by this um, endless expectation from above a lot of the time to just raise more money in the short term, focusing on a short-term return and not thinking about how those supporters feel and about what this is going to prompt in them in the long term. Are they going to stick around if they just feel like they're getting a mailing every single month? And probably not looking at the data on how responsive these supporters are to all of these mailings and and different communications. And I think that's something that people have to look really closely at. Thinking again about what has prompted their initial response and what other stuff that we're doing might they be interested in and how we're going to give them a good flavor of what we do as an organization and the different ways that they can be involved and don't put too much pressure on the short-term ROI because then you will just focus on sending them loads and loads of financial asks and it's not necessarily going to be a great experience for them. So when someone signs up to Friends of the Earth mainly thinking about email because that's where a lot of our, our comms go out, they will have initially a ring-fenced welcome journey that is a bit more specific to the campaign or the activity that they responded to. What so do you it mean will, by ring So we will send them on a, a, well we'll ring-fence different supporters and say right these are our, these are the people who signed up to our climate campaign so they're going to go on the climate welcome journey Right, and okay. these are people who signed up by bees sort and they'll the get a bees welcome journey the, yeah like. so it won't just talk about climate or just about bees because that's not giving that broader flavor mm. of all of the work that we do and also just because someone initially responds to climate doesn't mean that they're not interested in doing something on trees or on bees or on plastic yeah. so we want to give them that kind of um, more of that broad Narrative, you know, what we're doing and, and mm-hmm. a flavour of everything. So we'll do that initially, but they will get a different, um, they'll get a variety of asks. So they'll get a campaign action ask, or they might get invited along to a community group event, um, as well as getting financial asks. And we're always making sure that they feel really engaged and really valued as a supporter, regardless of what they've done, so that they can see the impact of their support. Um, so it's really about building that deeper relationship and giving them the opportunity to get involved and to show us what they'd like to do how much mm-hmm. how much and what sorts of things they'd like to do with us
0: i know i guess from working here there are lots of different sort of conflicting objectives in yeah. terms of non-financial and financial asks yeah, yeah. that's just the nature of a campaigning organization yeah. isn't it so how do you navigate that dilemma I think that's something
1: where I can see that we've made a lot of progress, actually, in the last few years, because previously it felt like it was more of a battleground as to like trying to get a fundraising e-appeal scheduled. Yeah, it yeah and it was constantly being a battle, like you say, between different parts of the organisation saying, no, this is the most important thing for us to say to supporters. So we, again, it's about really having more of a holistic view of that supporter experience and acknowledging that... Supporters who join us via a campaign action um, are often very interested in making a donation and vice versa. Just because we put our teams into these different corners of the office doesn't mean that our supporters are pigeonholing themselves in the same way. And having the data to show that, I think, is really powerful as well. So we've been doing that for quite a few years now. So we've got to a place where it is um, everyone agrees and it is accepted that the supporter journey isn't just about focusing on campaign actions or just on fundraising asks. Mm -hmm. It's about the many different ways that people can be involved with Friends of the Earth. And through testing out different asks and optimizing those welcome journeys, we've come to a point where we've got a really robust and high-performing welcome journey
0: for different supporters. So the proof is in the testing and in the data, really. Something that I think Simon Scriver said at a conference around, you know, we're doing lots of stuff around digital and technology, but actually what we need to do is put the people back into Mm -hmm. it as opposed to, Mm -hmm. you know, chatbots or whatever. So by having the supporter care team and yeah. individual giving geographically in yeah. the same place yeah. and under the same with the same sort of leadership mm-hmm. has that helped to put the human back in do yeah. do you actually speak to people <laughs> um, I don't speak to supporters as
1: much as I should do actually that's something that I do I do miss from those first few years of working in supporter care and having speaking to to donors every day actually can take up a fair bit of your time, but it's so insightful and it's so, so motivating to speak to people firsthand about what has kind of inspired them to give and why they think our work is so important. Mm -hmm. So we try and find ways to um, share those conversations and kind of except from those conversations um, with the wider organization. So we use Slack a lot at Friends of the Earth as a, a really useful kind of internal communications platform. So we've got lots of different Slack channels, you know, for different campaigns or projects or teams in the organization. And we've got one that the Supporter Care use to share little bits and pieces of conversations or emails or letters that they've received from supporters. To just share the thoughts and mm-hmm. the um, ideas of those supporters, but also the love and the mm-hmm. and the amazing support that they have for our cause, because and that really motivates staff. So it's not even just the fundraising team that get the benefit of that. It's the campaigners. It's the activism team. It's the finance team. It's the infrastructure team. So yeah. that's proved to be really, really valuable actually and it's so easy for them to share little bits and pieces on that channel and then um we can just kind of respond to that with a little emoji there's lots of green heart emojis on our (laughs) friends of the earth slack channels um and yeah i think that's made real progress in people having a better understanding of our supporters and the sort of things that they're saying Mm -hmm. and how they respond to to our campaigns and the work that we're doing
0: and it's real time as well yeah which i think is really helpful because yeah don't always want to get to the end of the month and read a report on yes lot of feedback
1: yeah example, absolutely
0: we also have it popping
1: up I yeah suppose. we also have a stand up every morning which is mainly different kind of channel owners or team leads in the different engagement teams here so fundraising um, uh, different comms teams marketing. And then we have someone from Supporter Care there. And that is um, a really short meeting every morning just to recap on what comms went out or what's going on in the outside world. Is there anything we need to respond to? Do we need to change our plans um, with what we've got you know, scheduled to go out on email to support us today? And we also obviously get feedback shared quite quickly there as well. So mm-hmm. if a big campaign email has gone out on a Monday afternoon then the Supporter Care representative will then be able to share the next morning what sort of response they've had, um, what sort of queries they've had off the back of that. If there have been lots of questions about a bit of content that we've linked to on our website, then the content manager can actually take that on board and make some changes to that content. Mm -hmm. So actually that feedback loop and the changes that we can make off the back of that is is pretty quick. Um, So again, that's just helping us to just use that experience of our supporters to improve our communications and to improve our work rather than like you say it being three months down the line when you do a project review or if you just happen to bump into someone in that team who took that phone call and remembers to pass on that feedback so about so it's about tightening up those relationships internally and thinking about what each person needs to do to be able to do their job well and at the end of that, it's about being able to have real-world impact mm. and recognising that we need our supporters with us to achieve that.
0: Sounds pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you said it's a stand-up. Do you literally just stand in the office? We actually again? sit down. Right. So
1: we've kind of broken the first rule of stand-ups. Right. <laughs> we sit down, but it is a short meeting. It is maximum of 15 minutes every morning. And we also have a Slack channel for that as well. So if people can't be there in that room, then they can post their updates or they can ask questions about what the plans are. Um again, mm-hmm. all in real time. So um, it feels like it's quite an efficient way of planning or replanning
0: or checking in on, on what we're doing that day. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I'm uh, not sure how much we want to talk about GDPR because it's gone, hasn't it? It
1: has, but it's not, you know. That was just the start. May 25th, 2018 was the start of GDPR. I haven't even asked you a question. No, <laughs> I'm talking I'm about GDPR. You're like the most get really excited <laughs> about, about these things. We had a, a fantastic project team here on G- looking at GDPR. And we had a playlist on Spotify and we I made cookies. Yeah. We've got to make these things fun, haven't
0: you? <laughs> it sounds like you did. Um, Ask me a question about GDPR, what? Beth. <laughs> Any question, you're on it. It's like your mastermind topic. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> At least we've got the lighting right for mm-hmm. a mastermind mm-hmm. topic. What has the impact been for you of Friends of the Earth, mm-hmm. GDPR? How, how do you see it as an opportunity? So there were a couple
1: of us here who were who started to spot that this thing called GDPR was being talked about about a year or so before it actually came in, and we were later to the party than we would have liked to have been, but we were certainly a lot earlier than a lot of people in the sector. So we were starting to kind of track what was being talked about by the DMA and certain other mm-hmm. parts of um, more kind of the commercial sector. Really, they were ahead of us as they often are, and the more and more we were learning about it, we agreed that actually it's the sort of thing that if it was if it was going to require a campaign to get this thing to happen, to have more rights back in the hands of the people, that's the sort of thing that Friends of the Earth would actually get behind if you yeah. think about it. Yeah. So thinking about the values that it, that, that it stems from and what it's actually trying to promote, um, I think is the right place to start. I'm not saying that the process and the guidance that we had or the lack of guidance was ideal um, and I'm not saying that the interpretation of the regulation and what it means for fundraising um, is necessarily completely clear or without risk mm. but I think getting back to basics again with this and thinking about what the expectation of your supporters is at the point where you're asking them for some of their data some of their information is the right way to frame it because you can manage the risk and think logically about this. And that's generally the right way to go. So I think a lot of people got themselves really tied up in knots. And I can understand that. We had a, we definitely had enough kind of tying ourselves up in knots um, here, even with having that kind of logical approach to it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if we want to promote our values as a sector of being all about respect and honesty and transparency and you know, fighting for good and trying to look out for people and promoting equality, then we need to apply that to how we do all of our work. And GDPR, I think, is actually a really good example of that, Mm. about respecting people's privacy, about being really clear with people about how you're going to use their information and what they can expect to hear from you in return. And if they don't want to hear from you by telephone, why would you want to call them by telephone? That's not going to make Mm. for good fundraising that is not without its challenges. We have seen our programme change quite a bit in the last few years as a result of changes in regulation, not just GDPR, but prior to that, about four years ago, there were some changes to telephone preference service rules, which meant that there was a massive drop in volume in our telephone fundraising, as a lot of other people in the sector found as well. So that required us to adapt our models and to think about what else was available to us and how else could we engage people in a way that that was first of all compliant and also that people were going to respond to Mm -hmm. so that really forced the issue I think and forced us to to look more into developing our digital activity so we don't do much telephone fundraising at all now whereas four or five years ago it was a huge part of our recruitment activity Um,
0: How do you use
1: it now? So we do a little bit of upgrade. Yeah, do a little bit of upgrade um, calling still, but that is a lot smaller than it ever used to be. But actually, because we also used to do a lot of telephone um, upgrade calling a few months, probably six months or so after donors first signed up and that was, when I joined Friends of the Earth, that was mainly through street fundraising, and so a telephone call made more sense for that audience, and and based on that first kind of interaction that they'd had with the organisation. So again, as that channel mix shifts in the recruitment programme, it also shifts in the retention Mm programme. So it's about making sure that we keep some kind of consistency of of the channels that we're using to support, to contact most of our supporters um, across the two sides of the IG programme. It's useful to remind myself of how different things were with digital when I started in the sector which for a lot of people will seem a long time ago but actually for a lot of us a mm. blink of an eye yeah. so when I joined the sector in 2005 we and this was at a small organization so we probably were quite behind a lot of larger charities but we weren't doing any digital marketing. Um, I was getting supporter emails through and responding to them, but we weren't doing any email broadcasts as we then started to call them a few years later. And we were just doing print and a bit of telephone. Um, And then when I joined Friends of the Earth in 2010, one of our direct marketing projects was called New Media, which sounded (laughs) very slick and exciting. (laughs) And that was basically digital stuff. And that started off as email and then started to become Facebook. So, in a short space of time, things have really transformed because Mm -hmm. now, in 2019, most of our new regular givers at Friends of the Earth are being recruited via digital activity. And at the moment, that is primarily paid social. So, that's um, adverts on social media channels and that's asking people to sign up to a regular gift. and that's been so, our breakthrough. Sorry
0: <clears throat> to interrupt. You, so you recruit straight to regular gift? Yeah, which
1: was a surprise for me, actually, because our old model of going straight to regular gift via the kind of mass acquisition channels like street fundraising and DRTV, well, DRTV was a two-stage approach. So we were asking people to text us. So this is the experience that you had recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we would call people up a lot sooner than four months later, and ask them if they could sign up to a regular gift. So, as I say, with all the changes in in regulations, that that two stage model with telephone being the follow up to get people to consider a regular gift just wasn't viable anymore because we just didn't have the volume to be able to do that. That meant that we had to think a bit more about how we could get mass volume um, of regular givers in, and we had definitely had struggles for a couple of years in trying to find. Um, the alternative kind of mass volume channel for regular giving. And so for a while, I thought we're probably going to have to take more of a um, kind of a bit more of a warm up approach and do a bit more of that two stage model, but using different channels. So start off with a cash donation and then use email as a follow up to ask people to sign up to a regular gift. Um, And actually, the, the initial test that we did on that, A couple of years ago now, 18 months or so ago, didn't really work that well. And so we decided to try going straight to regular gift, not thinking that it would do very well, because it's a bit of a tall order to ask someone outright to start making a regular donation. And actually, it did really, really well. So about a year ago, we started our Plastics Paid Social Regular Giving campaign um, using um, social media channels. And initially, we had a cost per donor of about £20, which is really ridiculous, actually. (laughs) So to put that into context, we were paying over £100 per donor when we were recruiting via street fundraising. So that was the early days, and that cost has gone up a bit, but it still is below £50 per donor, which is really fantastic and really strong. We have to be careful not just to focus on that one metric because that's the danger and that's that's the trap that a lot of people in direct marketing can end up falling into. We've got to think about the long term value. But so far, it's still early days because we've only been running that activity for a year. But so far, those donors are sticking with us. Um, and so the retention of those donors is a lot stronger than the donors that we were recruiting via street fundraising and DRTV. And so far, the volume, the initial volume isn't as huge. So we were recruiting about 10,000 donors a year through street fundraising in its heyday, probably about eight eight years ago now. Um, but actually, if you rolled forward six months, you only had about 40% of those left or something mm. like that. So if you looked at the, the volume at 12 months, you had maybe about 2,000 of those 10,000 left. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas with our paid social regular giving recruitment so far it looks like a lot more of those donors are sticking with us and now we're just starting to um, approach some of them about maybe increasing their regular gift as well so we've been trying that out by email as well as also having a bit of that telephone upgrade activity and still our our postal mailings on upgrade as well so that's also been another bit of development that we've had to do is to work with our digital team and our Um, other tech teams to be able to um, get people to give give them the ability to upgrade their regular gift via our website Um, so it would be really interesting to see how that does um, Mm. over the next few months as well we're still doing inserts as well and at the moment that's recruiting cash donors um, and we've been testing out different creative on that because we were using our bees campaign for quite a few years on that one Mm. Um, but we are developing inserts packs on our different campaigns um, now because we're not doing so much work on bees anymore so we tested out a inserts pack on our plastic campaign um, that's still actually dropping in different publications um, as we speak so it'll be interesting to see how that does because plastics has been such a popular issue with our donors and with new donors the Blue planet and it's really yeah exactly it's really resonated it's just become something that really people are really passionate about Sorting out, and so we really want to be able to tap into that appetite yeah. and that audience need, really, rather than just forcing what we think is important. It's important for us to be responsive to how people want to get involved with environmental issues. That always has to map back to what we are trying to achieve and what we believe are the right things to tackle. But it's really about combining that with what our audiences want to do and what what yeah. they're really interested yeah, in. Absolutely.
0: OK. Um, and you're still doing direct mail, though? Yeah, we're still doing
1: direct mail. So we're doing inserts for um, recruitment of new donors, um, National Geographic. We also put some uh, inserts in something like Gardener's World magazine mm-hmm. or um, New Statesman. A lot of the titles that you'd expect that um, supporters of Friends of the Earth would be interested in. Mm-hmm. Some really smaller, like, really small niche titles like Permaculture. So that's something that's still working well for us. And we'd like to do more testing with our different campaigns um, on inserts later in this financial year as well. Um, But we still do direct mail on our retention programme as well. So we send out cash appeal mailings three times a year. And we send out an upgrade mailing once a year to our regular donors. And then we also send out supporter magazines twice a year as well. And that's really to make our donors feel really valued um, and to give them uh, loads of information and updates on what we're doing with their donations as well as to give them um, other ways to get involved in
0: our work Mm -hmm. cool right sounds good So I saw somebody, I think, in the States talking about, obviously it was Twitter because it's the only way that I managed to keep engaged with the world. Um, Not always a world that I want to engage with, to be honest, on Twitter. Um, But somebody who I think is probably quite a nice, normal person, so, you know. um, They are still out there. They are still (laughs) out there, even fundraising Twitter. Um, She said, oh, I've just finished uh, doing, I don't know, copywriting for an appeal um, across multiple channels, mm-hmm. like mail, Facebook, mm-hmm. Twitter, Instagram, mm-hmm. and all of this. And I was like, oh, my God, I feel like an old person because I've, I've got an Instagram account. But as you know, I I, I logged on it, like, last week, and I was like, oh, cat, mentioned me in something in May. <laughs> <laughs> How important is it for organizations to be across various different social media channels I think it depends on your audience because it's all about
1: being able to engage with your audience where they are isn't it Mm. so and this will vary depending on on the profile of the of your existing supporters and those that you're trying to reach it's about having a good idea about where your supporters, where where your audience already spends its time. Is it on social media? Is it listening to the radio? Is it reading the broadsheets or the tabloids? And it's about working out what your presence needs to be to engage with them. We were quite late to Instagram. And so we've been able to grow that quite rapidly in the last year or two. But we were definitely late to that party. So a lot of other organisations, you can tell the ones who were, quicker off the mark with Instagram because they've got huge huge followings and um, so we've still got a long way to go on that front but um, despite that we are seeing really great engagement using Instagram so our social media manager will plan out the the kind of content and comms for Instagram but we also use that um, as a paid media channel for our fundraising recruitment as well, okay. so that's where a lot of those new regular givers are coming from. Um, and so it's all about making sure you've got a good sense of what your audience profile is, and and really yeah. kind of getting under the skin of them to know what are their what's their media consumption, what does that look like.
0: Mm. So thinking about Facebook specifically, I saw that Greenpeace are doing some really cool stuff. Around using Messenger, Facebook yeah. Messenger, yeah, and then so having that, I think they have that initial interaction yeah. to scope out things yeah. with the supporter, yeah. and then there's a chat bot that will talk to them about, I I think a specific area of Greenpeace's yeah. work, yeah yeah that sounds like the
1: future it does it's quite a whizzy isn't it, really, <laughs> oh, it? Like my <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um yeah it's really exciting to hear what uh, a lot of other organizations are doing um, with with new media yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and it is about trying to stay one kind of uh, step ahead of things really so Again, it's about recognizing where your audience is spending its time. People are spending spend all our time hunched over our phones or our mm. um, kind of other other devices, don't we? So it makes sense to be having conversations there. If people are scrolling through Instagram or through Facebook, um, then it makes sense to try and have a bit of immediate engagement with that potential supporter on that channel, rather than it being respond to this thing and then two days later you'll get an email follow-up or then we'll ask you to do this other thing it makes sense to really build that conversation again it's just going back to those basics about building relationships and having human conversations with people getting a good idea about what they're interested in what prompted on on what prompted them to click on that ad in the first place and what else would they like to do and recognizing that we're all so busy um, that we don't have, there isn't enough attention out there. And so um, it's really about making it really easy for people and being able to uh, give them the opportunity at the time when you've got their attention rather than hoping that they'll come back to it a few hours later, yeah. Yeah. or that they'll be able to scroll through their Instagram feed and find that that piece of content again, because they won't, it's also fleeting, isn't it? Yeah. So I think it makes sense to just to be that, um responsive and to to really think about that supporter experience and and meeting them where they're already at
0: so what are your top tips for people looking to grow individual giving you got like three top tips three is the magic number isn't it three <laughs> both always went for three didn't they so oh, he, yeah, we can know what he was doing didn't he <laughs> yeah. um i think a lot of it
1: is about Going back to some of the things I've said in some of the other um, answers here around getting back to the basics of knowing your audience. So get whatever insight you can get about your audience. Even if you don't have much budget, you can still find out Mm -hmm. a lot about your supporters through those conversations that you're having. And through the responses that they're sending, you can actually build up a decent picture about what motivates your supporters and, and what they actually want to support amongst all of the work and the things that you're offering and use that to really build a good sense of of what that ongoing relationship could be like and how you can further their engagement with the organisation and test out different things. So you can do a lot of low-risk and fairly low-cost testing via digital, as well as Mm -hmm. if you've already got supporters that you can email or call up, then you can find things out by asking them. Um, And you can use that to then inform what you do on a larger scale. So test, test small and then scale up, obviously, to kind of be able to realise the potential of those new ideas or activities. Um, And I think so much of it is about getting those basics right. Um, Look after your supporters, treat them well, treat them with respect, say thank you and meet their expectations and actually so so much of that will put you in a great place for your future fundraising if you're building that trust being authentic being transparent and being honest and will give you a really good basis for then kind of trying to um, grow your program and try out different things and I think we have to be quite bold and we have to adapt to changing changing rules and changing interests and changing habits of the audiences that are out there that we're trying to engage with. So I think there's been a huge amount of change in the last few years in the sector and that has been a challenge for a lot of us to be able to adapt to that and to find a new normal and to find different ways to engage with people when the old routes seem to be closed off to us. But it's also an opportunity to really move with the times and to not just fight against changes in regulations and to not just stick with the old model, even if it's not working anymore. If the numbers are telling you that that model isn't working, then you need to think differently and you need to try some different things out. Um, And that's what we've done at Friends of the Earth. There's more for us to do. There's always more we want to do. We want more budget so we can do more stuff. Um, But we've actually seen a huge transformation in our IG programme just in the last kind of two to three years Mm -hmm. and we're not a huge organization I appreciate that we're a lot bigger than than many organizations but we are not one of the big guys Mm -hmm. and I think that people need to be a lot more um, honest about where they need to make changes and where they need to stop doing activity that isn't working and try new things out and think long term you've Mm -hmm. always got to think long term with individual giving because the old model was one of going for big numbers and short-term return mm. and that just doesn't work so we have to mm. think long term we have to build engagement and we have to try and do new things that was bold
0: finish thanks bold finish. <laughs> <laughs> right final question is there a book person or ethos that has inspired your work I think it's really about
1: my start in the sector. And before that, I worked in retail. Well, serving customers, basically, doing on the tills and on the fitting rooms in BHS in Exeter. (laughs) And um, I think there's a lot to be said for starting off with that sort of interaction with customers and supporters. Mm -hmm. And for me, I may not get the chance to speak to supporters in the day to day anymore. But I don't ever lose sight of them and I don't ever leave them out of the picture so whenever we're doing activity whenever we're spending budget and thinking about the donors that gave us that money and what we want to try and achieve with their support so that we're doing them justice really so I think it for me it's about sticking with those basic principles of supporter care and customer care and remembering who is funding our work and um, that we can't do it without them. That's a
0: very modest and beautiful <laughs> Beautiful example. I particularly like the reference to British home stores. Oh, I love that place. It's so sad that it's
1: gone forever. It is. Had some happy times there. Yeah, excellent lighting
0: section as well, I have to say.
1: uh, To tell you though, to work there, Beth, you didn't want to have to go down to the lighting section because it was so hot. It was so, so hot. It was very cold at the front of the store. The doors were open, really not good for energy efficiency. The back of the store, intense heat from all of the lights that were always on. I mean, Friends of the Earth would be campaigning against that
0: if VHS was still going. (laughs) That's (laughs) that's an excellent finish. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Beth. I hope that you found the chat with Catherine insightful. Here are the key things that I'm taking away. Firstly, although big budget, above the line campaigns will continue to be valuable for many organisations, the general shift in direct marketing over recent years has been away from interruption techniques and much more towards building engagement and conversations right from the get-go. Friends of the Earth's success in regular giving recruitment from paid social media is a good example of this, and the key to it is knowing your target audience and having conversations with them where and when they are ready. Greenpeace has taken this a step further with their use of Facebook Messenger, and it sounds like it's working really well for them. Secondly, seeing GDPR and sector regulatory changes as opportunities is refreshing, but it's true, the drivers for many of these changes are in line with what we stand for as a sector, values such as respect and transparency, for example. This mindset, along with the cookies and a Spotify playlist, seem to have held Friends of the Earth in good stead. And finally, a lot of direct marketing is about basic communication skills, like simply minding your P's and Q's. It sounds like Catherine's grounding in customer service from BHS back in the day prepared her well for the job that she's doing now. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, I'd love it if you'd rate it on iTunes, for example. And if you're on the Twitter, you can find me at, at Beth